Welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast, a guide for those interested in hearing more about hunting, fishing, and other paths to eating more responsibly. Now, here's your host, Mark Norquist. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this new episode of the Modern Carnivore Podcast. I have to start by saying it's been a while. Um, It's been several months since we pushed out the last episode, and I do want to apologize for that because uh, many of you have been asking when the new episode was going to come out, uh, including David Giever. David, I haven't forgotten about you and the conversation we had in Brooklyn on urban nights and how uh, people living in the city can get out hunting. Uh, David had said to me uh, he'd love to have a conversation, but only if uh, we got more episodes out more consistently. So we're going to do that here in 2020. Part of the reason why we haven't been able to push them out is we've been really busy. And uh, a couple of things I want to share with you today uh, to give you an idea of what we've been up to. First of all, we recently launched a new podcast, and it's called Outdoor Feast, and it is hosted by Todd Waldron. Todd lives in New York, um, in northern New York, and you may have heard his other podcast, the East to West Hunting Podcast, that he's been doing for a couple years. Uh, Todd does a great job with pulling the best out of people in conversations that he has with them, and I'm really excited for this new offering on the Modern Carnivore platform. We've already got three episodes out. First episode is with Lantani, Jamie Carlson, and myself. Uh... The second episode is with Shane Rogers. He is with an organization called Rooted in Vermont. They talk about the connection between farm to table and hunting, fishing, and foraging. And then episode three is with Katrina Talbot. Uh, Katrina leads the bow program in New York, which if you're not familiar with it, is the Becoming an Outdoors Woman program. This exists in a lot of different states. And uh, she talks about all the great things that are going on with providing resources to introduce women to hunting, which is great. So you can find the Outdoor Feast on the website, so modcarn.com. Just go under the podcast tab, and you can also find it on iTunes, and we'll soon be pushing it out on all the other um, formats that, uh, that you may listen to podcasts on. The second thing we're doing is we're launching a new offering this spring called Hunting Camp Live. And we recently previewed it at Pheasant Fest, which is the annual meeting of the conservation group Pheasants Forever. Pheasants Forever has been a great partner of Modern Carnivores. And uh, at this event, we felt it was a great time to preview it. And really what it is is an online community and learning hub where new and experienced hunters are going to be able to gather and discuss issues around uh, learning to hunt, challenges of hunting, how to overcome them, tips, tricks, those types of things. And you're going to be able to do it from the comfort of your own couch. So it's sort of a virtual hunting camp you can go to in between the times when you're out at the real thing. So for a limited time, you can register for free if you go to modcarn.com forward slash hunting camp. That's forward slash hunting camp. And uh, check it out. So today's guest is Sally Fallon Morell. This is a little bit different from some of our typical conversations. Sally doesn't hunt. She doesn't fish. But what she does, I think you'll find really interesting. And that is she brings a unique perspective to the modern diet. 
She is both an author and the founder of the organization called the Weston A. Price Foundation. This is a nonprofit, and if you go on their website, it says it was founded in 1999 to disseminate the research of nutrition pioneer Dr. Weston Price, whose studies of isolated, non-industrialized peoples establish the parameters of human health and determine the optimum characteristics of human diet. That was a mouthful. But uh, basically, what uh, what the organization is doing is, is, again, based on the work of Dr. Price, what he did was basically, back in the 1930s, studied native communities across the world that were still hunting and gathering. And he looked at health indicators like teeth and skull structure and other factors, and then also their diet. And his point of view was that they were much healthier and that it was due to their diet when you look at those at those factors. And that diet was made up of nutrient-dense things like animal protein, uh, both from muscles as well as nutrient-dense organs like liver, heart, kidney. And so the, the point of view of the organization is that those nutrients are critical to the body and to, to psychological health. And there are all, all kinds of underpinnings as to this and why those fats and, and minerals uh, provide those benefits uh, that are part of the traditional diet. And uh, Sally's belief is that the modern dietary guidelines are actually resulting in us starving our bodies of what we really need. And that that is in part what's driving a lot of the physical maladies we have and psychological issues that are going on in society today. So this can obviously, you know, be considered controversial when they say things like um, eat as much butter as you would like, which uh, which actually sounds pretty good. So there obviously are detractors to uh, Dr. Price's work, uh, but only you can determine if it makes sense uh, as you are either considering starting your hunting journey or continuing down the path you've been on for years hunting uh, and how that meat and maybe those organs are part of your of your diet. So set your assumptions aside for a moment on what you think is a healthy diet and listen to this conversation with Sally Fallon Morrell. Okay, hello everyone. Today uh, I am joined by Sally Fallon Morrell, uh, who is the founder of the Weston A. Price Foundation. And so I'd like to welcome her to the conversation today. Thank you, thanks Mark. And um, so, Sally, what I'd like to do is maybe just start um, by having you share a little bit of background on who you are. Where, where did you grow up? You're in Maryland today, correct? No, yes, but I grew up in California. Um, I didn't grow up on a farm or anything. Um, and I had a number of health problems as a young woman, basically fatigue and allergies. And I... Uh, learned that if I ate a lot of butter, <laughs> a lot of fat with each meal, um, I felt a lot better. I actually lost weight when I did that, and my allergies were better. So it was obviously I was suffering from low blood sugar. And then uh, in the 1970s, um, I started my family. Uh, my first child was born in 1973. 
And that was when this um, message about low fat was becoming uh, more strident. You started to read in the newspapers that we were not supposed to eat butter, we weren't supposed to eat fat, and no cream, you know, <laughs> no eggs. And I love to cook, and I cooked with those foods, and of course I found that those foods made me feel better. So I just didn't believe them. And then fortunately, I stumbled upon Dr. Price's book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, in which he describes the diets of these traditional people and uh, healthy people, and they were high-fat diets. Um, they had lots of animal foods, uh, whole dairy, um, lots of fat. Uh, and so I thought, well, I, I know I'm, what I'm doing is right. I'm just not going to listen to these voices. So that, that was the start of my skepticism on all this. And then much later I had the, and by the way, I have four children and they were all very healthy on the diet that I fed them, very rich diet, and none of them needed to have their teeth straightened. And that was very interesting to me because I needed braces as a child. I had crooked teeth and an overbite. So um, I, I kind of proved to myself that this diet works. And then uh, later I got the idea to write uh, this cookbook, Nourishing Traditions, and I met up with Mary Ennig, a lipid researcher who totally agreed with me that low fat was not the way to go and it was especially damaging to growing children. So we wrote the book together and then later we founded the Weston A. Price Foundation. So you had a... Um a personal feeling uh, uh, that, that was connecting your diet to how you felt. Um, you then came across Dr. Price's work. Now, you know, when, did, when did Dr. Price live and, and where and how did he do his research? So Dr. Price was a dentist. He worked in the 30s and 40s. Uh, he started his first trip to study traditional people in 1931. The first place he went was Switzerland which is kind of interesting because my background is highly, a lot of Swiss in my background. And then he went to the Outer Hebrides. He went to um, Canada. Uh, he went to the um, Florida Everglades, which is kind of interesting and um, studied the um, Native Americans there. He went to the South Seas and to Australia, New Zealand and Africa. Um, so uh, he published his book in 1945, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, and it's been in print all that time. Certainly not a bestseller, not acknowledged by the medical establishment, but it's a book that's had tremendous influence on a lot of people, including myself. And that was going to be one of my questions. I am, I'm presuming there's obviously a lot of detractors and not, not, uh, not as much support as you would like to see from the medical community. And, and tied in with that, and, and I don't know if you have any perspectives on that you'd like to share, but I guess. Well, yes, he was, uh, in the early days, he was highly acclaimed. He, his book was used in anth anthropology courses at Harvard. Okay. But uh, he quickly became a persona non grata in his day. He was referred to as a quack. And he's definitely on uh, quack watch, which I consider a badge of honor. And, um, but I am more concerned, not with people who um, ignore him or call him a quack, but what I'm more concerned about is people who claim that what they are promoting is what Dr. Price uh, taught or found or discovered. 
And that to me is, is of more concern to me. Sure, sure. So one, one of the questions I was curious about was, was as to why um, he looked at teeth as, as the primary indicator of health. But obviously, you just mentioned he's a dentist. And, and so there, there was uh, the reason for his focus on that, obviously. Well, it also is a primary indicator of health. I mean, in the old days, in his day, when they were recruiting people to the army, they, that's what they did. They looked at people's teeth and you were accepted or rejected based on your teeth. Uh, but uh, I think that um, it's kind of obvious when we see uh, somebody smile and they have a nice wide smile and, no, you know, nice bright white teeth, um, it's, you think this person is healthy. I mean, the, the it is, there's a sort of a general view that the health of the teeth is associated with the health of the rest of the body. Uh, and that's what Dr. Price believed. But the teeth are what you can see. And that's what he did. He went to all these cultures. He lined people up. He opened their mouths and he looked in and he counted cavities and noted the presence of dental deformities. That's crooked or crowded teeth. So, so that part of his work was extremely precise and scientific. And then he took more general notes on the health of the populations that he studied, but uh, that was definitely very interesting, but just kind of general comments. So your first book you wrote in 1995 is called Nourishing Traditions. I, yes. mm -hmm. I, I think words are really important, and I think those two words say a lot. Um, is this, is your work, is the Weston A. Price Foundation which you formed after writing the books, um, is this book uh, a diet? Yes, it's a set of principles. Uh, I mean, the book is a cookbook, so there's lots of recipes in there. But what we promote at the foundation is a set of principles. We have 11 principles, and these can be applied to different diets. Um, I mean, the diet of the Eskimos was very different from the diet of the South Sea people. So we're not saying you have to eat so many percentages of fats, carbs, or proteins. We, we have some general guidelines. But uh, you need, uh, if you are allergic to dairy products, then you obviously can't include them in your diet. If you are um, gluten intolerant, you obviously are going to have trouble with wheat. So you have to... Uh, kind of adjust the particulars of your own diet to what you can eat, what you like, uh, what you can afford, what you have time to prepare. And I always say the biggest test is, will your children eat it? Because if your children won't eat it, then <laughs> it's not going to work for your diet. Uh, but the principles can be applied um, to any kind of diet. Well, I don't say any kind of diet, but to a lot of uh, variations on the diet. Sure, sure. But the underlying principles, a lot of it is that animal fats and cholesterol are not the villains that we've made them Exactly, out. and that's part of the teaching that we have to do. These diets were extremely nutrient dense. I mean, that's like the bottom line about these diets, nutrient density. So all your food choices and the way you prepare your food and everything needs to aim at maximizing nutrient density. And the key nutrients that were really high in these traditional diets, every single one, no matter where he was looking, were vitamins A, D, and K. And where do we get these vitamins? Well, first and foremost, we get them from the fats of grass-fed animals. 
uh, fats, butter fat, lard, and we get them from organ meats and things like fish eggs. Shellfish are also good sources. So it's a kind of limited range of foods that we get these fat-soluble vitamins from, but they definitely need to be in the diet. So uh, let's just take shellfish. Now, shellfish were a very important food in traditional cultures. Um, I don't think anyone would deny that. Um, and they're very rich in, in nutrients, fat-soluble vitamins. Personally, I have trouble with raw oysters. Uh, my husband loves them, uh, but that's just something that I have to exclude. I, I just can't swallow a raw oyster. So I have, I have, I get my fat-soluble vitamins from other sources. Um, I'm, I'm the butter person. I love butter and put it on everything. So um, you have to kind of adjust uh, your diet, but you definitely want to be getting uh, these nutrients. And, and that's something that I think I've seen um, you say in, in some of your other, other media is talking about inclusivity versus exclusivity as, as an underpinning, correct? Right. We hate to exclude major food groups <laughs> because that makes the diet restricted and, and kind of boring. But uh, just take the case of grains. Uh, all the cultures that Dr. Price looked at in the temperate zone ate grains. But they prepared them very carefully before they ate them because grains are very hard to digest. And we've all kind of learned that by experience. So the grains were, um, they were either ground into flour and made into a very dense sourdough bread, or they were soaked whole and then wet ground uh, to make little cakes and, and things like that. But they were fermented first. And that fermentation process, first of all, releases the minerals, uh, creates B vitamins, so takes a grain and makes it into a really nutrient-dense food and also gets rid of the anti-nutrients, all the irritating things in the grain, even helps with the gluten in grain. So do you believe that um, there, is, there is a connection when you think of from, from a physical standpoint, you talked about um, you know, the, the basis of, of Dr. Price's work, he's looking at the teeth as an indicator of health. Uh, do you believe there's a connection with the lack of nutrient density in foods and a lot of the digestive issues we're hearing about constantly these days, whether it's IBS, Crohn's disease, celiac, et cetera? Yes, um, I think that's two things. First of all, it's a lack of um, certain nutrients. Vitamin A, for example, is really critical for a healthy gut and for the, um, the mucus producing cells to work and to be properly formed. Uh, vitamin A is just critical. And of course, where do we get vitamin A? We get it from the, the fats, the animal fats and, and, and liver. I mean, we think people should be eating liver at least once a week. So, um, but the other thing is that we're not preparing these grains carefully and they become very, very irritating to the gut. So it's kind of twofold. It's the lack of proper preparation and, and also lack of, lack of proper cultivation because we're spraying Roundup on wheat. Uh, wheat is the number one source of Roundup in the Western diet, even though wheat is not genetically modified. But they spray it on just before harvest to desiccate the wheat. And so it's still there in spades uh, when the wheat is made into different products. So we've got that going on. We've got the grains not properly prepared. And then we have the diet lacking in the fat-soluble vitamins and the animal fats. 
what you need for a healthy gut wall. It's uh, it's fascinating. I think where we're at culturally with uh, with a lot of these issues uh, today, and, and it, it seems to make a lot of sense. Yeah, you know, we we think we know everything, <laughs> and we went to all these places in the world uh, to civilize people, and, and we thought that we were bringing them everything they needed. They had nothing to give us except cheap labor. And Dr. Price's view was so different. He said, I come as a missionary from the primitive peoples to the people of the Western world. And he basically was saying, what they have to teach us is far more important for our survival and our well-being than what we have to teach them. And that was quite an attitude in, in the 1940s. Absolutely. Um, it's a very provocative thought today. Um, back then, I can't, I can't even imagine. Um, so obviously, di digestive challenges, um, other things. What about on the psychological side? Um, you know, whether it's depression, addiction, different things like that. Do you believe there's a, there's a connection between nutrient-dense foods and, and, and dietary guidelines and, and, and the, the mental issues? Absolutely, and we have written about this. <clears throat> so um, our bodies make feel-good chemicals. Uh, we make natural opioids, we make natural cocaine, and we make natural cannabinoids, and we have receptors. And I often like to say the natural state of the body is to feel high all the time but naturally, not from any drugs that we take. And the cannabinoids, the endocannabinoids, are made out of something called arachidonic acid. This is an omega-6 fatty acid found exclusively in animal foods, mainly in the animal fats. Now here we are a culture that has been avoiding animal fats for the last 50 or 60 years, and thinking vegetable oils were better, there's no arachidonic acid in vegetable oil. No wonder we're depressed. No wonder we don't feel well. No wonder the drugs make us feel, you know, when people take uh, marijuana or the drugs, it makes them feel normal the way they're supposed to feel all the time. Unfortunately, when they get these things from plants, uh, there are side effects and some very serious side effects. Uh, so if we're eating the right diet, and that's going to be a very rich diet, uh, we will make the um, chemicals we need in our body to feel um, happy, optimistic, uh, you know, forward-looking, and uh, just to feel good. Uh, by the way, and depression is very much associated with low blood sugar, that I can attest to, and just keeping your blood sugar up means eating good fats with every meal also. I'm sure you, you know that, so. So um, the modern carnivore community is very much about looking at, at uh, protein and animal-based protein uh, as, as a healthy thing, um, not only in the types of products you may buy, but most definitely part of getting people outdoors, getting them connected to their, their environment, um, and actually hunting, fishing, foraging, and those activities. Um, so very much focused on, on, on the meat side of things. But I guess I just want to go down and, and, and get your perspectives on these. You've talked about these a little bit already. But the, 
you know, if you think about the major, the major food groupings and, and the USDA guidelines, that's something that you, I believe you've, you've said is, is a, a big part of the problem and the challenge, correct? Well, just the idea that we should base our diet on carbohydrates instead right. of fats. Right, right. Interesting. So if you think about grains, um, you've talked about sprouted grains, soaked grains, sourdough breads. Uh, what is the general the general thinking related to, to that in the diet? Well, that the grains need to be properly prepared, consumed with good fats, you know, so you want to see teeth marks in the butter, okay? <laughs> uh, um, you do need a certain amount of carbs in the diet. Now, Chris Masterjohn, who writes for us, says it should be 100 grams a day of carbs. So that's, um, there's about 50 grams in a potato. There's about 50 grams in two slices of bread. So it's not like you're completely in eliminating those foods. Just, you know, don't overdo uh, is, is what we're saying and prepare them properly. Uh, Mark, can I just go back to the meat for a minute? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I just want to. So, you know, one of our big messages is that whatever we eat, we need to prepare it properly. And with meat, uh, there's really two things involved here. First of all, you always want to eat the meat with the fat. That was an, like a fundamental rule among traditional cultures. They never ate lean meat. And, um, you know, you see pictures of these very lean steaks, um, you know, sliced up nice medium rare. That's, that's fine if it's medium rare, but there's no fat on this meat. And this is, this is going to get you in trouble. Um, it will deplete vitamin A for one thing. And the other thing is your meat needs to be, um, your meat's the muscle meat, but there's also the um, collagen in the animal. And that's from the tendons and, and so forth and the connective tissue. And so we also need that in our diet. We need the meat, to, the muscle meat to be balanced by the, the collagen. And uh, so this is where the bone broth comes in. Bone broth is just melted collagen. And then that you can use that bone broth for a delicious gravy or sauce or soup or stew uh, with your meat. And this is the really good balanced way of eating meat. Really interesting. I, I was uh, at a new restaurant just down the road the other day that had pho. And they had uh, ten oh, yeah. chunks of tendon right in, right in the broth. Oh, is it right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, people who have really strong jaws. I mean, I've seen African people just take pieces of gristle and just oh they love it and they chew it up and I, I wouldn't have the strength to chew that but people have really good facial structure and strong jaws can can chew that gristle let me ask you this here's a question i i've i've had as i as i've been following your work um so when you talk about the importance of fats in the meat and and the importance of of eating the lean meats with the fats what would be your perspective on um like, you know, with a lot of new hunters, uh, deer hunting is very popular and, and it's the most popular type of hunting in North America. Yeah. Obviously, a very lean, that venison is a very lean meat. And, and, a lot, and, and a lot of times there's a lot of discussion in our community that goes around the fat of that meat, whether it's, it's a good edible versus is it something to be cut off. And it definitely can have a very off-putting flavor in certain scenarios. Now, cold fat around the stomach cavity is something that's become very popular in the yeah. last few years. Yeah. But, um, yeah, what's your, what's your perspective on that, on very lean venison? Yeah. Well, the traditional cultures selectively hunted 
they hunted the older animals that had built up a slab of back fat and in a thousand pound animal, now that's not a deer, but maybe a moose, moose there'd yeah. be 90 pounds of back fat, not including the cavity fat. Um, so, you know, we're not doing that with the average deer out here. <laughs> they are lean animals. And one of the things I notice, we have a lot of deer hunters here in Southern Maryland, and that's the time of year in this fall when they hunt, that's when you can go into the supermarket and buy tallow <laughs> because they're buying the tallow to make the deer sausage. Yep. So, so I think you, you would just add um, some tallow, which has actually a more presentable uh, taste. Flavor profile, yeah, no, that, oh, makes, mm -hmm. that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, let me go down this path for a minute. So I, I think you touched on it a little bit ago. Uh, I, I'm presuming uh the tenants of your organization um would disagree with certain aspects of of the popular diets nowadays of of specifically paleo keto um and so i guess what what are your what are your thoughts on that well the paleo diet is all about lean meat lean 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 and we're just that's just not the way traditional people ate uh, they knew they'd get sick if they ate lean meat, and there is a good scientific reason why they would get sick. And the reason is that to digest and utilize protein, you need vitamin A. And if you're eating lean meat, you're eating all this protein without vitamin A, and you deplete your vitamin A stores. And all you have to do is read Stefanson, who talked about this at great length, how the they would never eat lean meat. They saved the fat. So if it was a time of year when they could only eat rabbit, they would have some fat left uh, to eat with the rabbit. Otherwise, they'd get rabbit hunger. And rabbit hunger came from eating a lot of lean meat. Interesting. Really, really interesting. Um, how about keto? So keto is, again, uh, keto is very high in fat, and so that's better, definitely better. Uh, but um, I do think you do need some carbs. Um, uh, apparently, they're very important for thyroid function. I think it's just for satiety. Um, you know, it just seems like such a, a shame to leave out something that tastes so good and such good vehicles for animal fats. <laughs> I like uh, I like how uh, the philosophy uh, is is very supportive of good tasting foods. Yeah, yeah. You know, the the diet really has to taste good. It has to be delicious. It, yeah. You can't feel like you're renouncing every time you sit down to a meal that you're giving up something. Right. The the meal has to be, and you talk about the spiritual aspect of eating. I think there's something very spiritual about sitting down, having a meal with somebody, or just a meal with a good book. You're taking time out, very important. Um, you shouldn't be walking and eating at the same time. You're sitting down, you're allowing, allowing your digestion to, to come online. And it should be peaceful and it should be absolutely delicious and satisfying. And then uh, you go back to your work and you've eaten a wonderful meal and you don't even think about food until till you get hungry again. Yeah, I, when I was younger, I, I traveled a fair amount and actually lived abroad in, in Europe for a few years and uh, um, got different perspectives on on, on food. And uh, I always felt that we had it wrong here in terms of seeing it purely as, as a fuel to move on to the next thing rather than 
celebrated part of why we live and enjoying I, it. I totally agree. And, um, you know, this is, um, this is what sets us apart from animals, that we make a process and a ritual out of everything. Yeah, and absolutely. That's, that's a good thing to do. Um, I love how, by the way, I love how I, I think I've heard you reference butter as the queen of fats. The queen of fats, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, another thing I'm concerned about in some of these diets is they leave out salt. Okay, uh, that was going to be my next question, yeah. what your perspective is on salt. The paleo, the paleo diet is salt-free, and the paleo diet is a, is a copyrighted diet, by the way. Okay. So if you're saying, oh, I, I do paleo, but I eat salt, then you're not doing paleo, okay? But um, all traditional cultures use salt. They went to a lot of effort to obtain salt. And I got a letter uh, a few years ago from someone who said, well, the Native Americans didn't eat salt. And I said, oh, yes, they did. And I sent him uh, links to several works about salt in North America. And this is really interesting. So there were salt springs throughout the Ohio Valley, and there was also salt sources in the Southwest. And there were families who didn't live in Indian tribes, they didn't call themselves a member of any tribe, who traded in salt. So they got the salt from the salt springs. Um, they had very special pans for doing this, and we have the archeological evidence of this. And then they walked all over the North American continent uh, trading salt. And I have a theory about uh, why the Native Americans succumbed uh, so quickly to disease. And I think it was because the salt trade got disrupted first. The, especially in the Southwest, the Spaniards came and they wanted that salt and they disrupted the whole trade. So a lot of tribes suddenly found themselves without salt. And this was a terrible thing uh, to not have salt. The description of how they died without salt is very similar to the description of the kind of illness, infectious, what they call infectious illness that they supposedly died from. I believe the uh, origination of the word salary is, yeah, is salt. comes from salt. Right? Yes. Yeah, which shows you the value that uh, ancient cultures And work. all the great civilizations grew up where they had salt. And in the past, salt was used as a way of controlling people because if you didn't, you know, toe the line, they would re remove your access to salt. Have you, um, have you by any chance heard a theory about um, Lyme disease and, and salt of, there's, there's a theory I read about once that basically uh, looked at the, the low sodium diet and, and the, declining salt consumption and the corollary rise in Lyme disease? Well, I have not heard that one. <laughs> I do think when you're sick, you need more salt. Um, so I, I have I've not heard that theory. Um, the, we, we need a teaspoon and a half of salt per day to satisfy our sodium requirements. And that's just about what we eat now. So I think one of the good things about being modern is that we have access to cheap and plentiful salt. That's, that is a real step forward for civilization. Yeah, no, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit more about meat. Um, wild versus domestic meat sources. Uh, for you personally, and, and, and I guess what you go out and talk about, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you want your 
animals to grow up outside eating green grass, green stuff, okay? Uh, then you'll have these uh, vitamins in the fats, vitamins A, D, and K. So we are huge proponents of grass-based and uh, wild. Uh, again, you, as you know, these, the challenge on wild is to make sure it has plenty of fat. Yeah. Uh, when you think of the Native Americans, one of the animals they had was beaver. <laughs> there were millions of beavers in North America, and the beaver has a very fat tail. And that was one of the things they prized. And also they had bear, and the bear fat was a sacred food for them. We tested bear fat and found it to be off the charts for vitamin K. Kind of interesting. Oh, people, people who hunt bear, I, I've actually, I haven't had much of an interest in bear hunting. Uh, recently, I'm, I'm coming around to the idea possibly though, and, and part of it is in terms of the bear fat and just how, what, it, what an amazing animal it is from a nutrition. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, again, uh, the, the key thing is that these animals are not in confinement. They're hmm. outside. Yeah. Now, I have come kind of head to head with a few people. Um, you, you never want to be obsessive about anything. And, you know, suppose you fed a little grain at the end to get them fatter, like your cows. Yeah. And uh, I'm not a purist on this. I, I think there's a place for this. I think sometimes the grass-fed beef can be too lean. And, you know, if you feed a good organic grain for two or three weeks before slaughter, um, I think... I think that's fine. After all, uh, what was the meal that was given to the prodigal son when he decided to return home? Mm -hmm. It was a fatted calf. It was, yeah, yeah. yeah, fatty yeah. beef. Yeah. Um. So how about uh, how about organ meats? Uh, I believe that's the important I'm so part. So glad you brought this. Organ meats are the most nutritious part of the animal. They're ten to a hundred times more nutritious than the muscle meats. And when they were hunting, um, and not just in North America, but everywhere in the world, when they hunted an animal, uh, the first thing they did was remove the brain, the liver, the marrow, and the tongue. These were very easy to get to. And um, those were consumed first. So they, and if the animal was too lean or if the hunting was really good, they just left it there. They didn't carry it back to camp. Uh, a very interesting description is given to us um, by da uh, Samuel Hearn, who was the first European to go into the northern latitudes, and he traveled with the Native Americans there. And he described what they did when they killed an animal. So they took out the stomach and emptied the stomach, and then they shredded up the meat and the organ meats and the fat, and they put it in the stomach. They, they, put it into small pieces like a sausage, and then they poured the blood into this mixture and tied it up and smoked it over the fire. <laughs> and this was called a biati. He said it was absolutely delicious. It was salty because of the blood. <laughs> and uh, that is how they ate the meat. So they basically ate it as a mixture of meats, organ meats, and fat and blood. Almost like a, like a egg. Like a what? Like a haggis? Like a haggis, yes, without the grain, but um, yeah. like a haggis, yes. I love haggis. Mm -hmm. um, what, what is your, uh, so 
So yes, we definitely need to eat organ meats. And I know that is a challenge for a lot of people. <laughs> um, I always say that the French are the people who figured out how to make awful taste good. Yeah. So <laughs> we need to learn to make pate. Um, I just went to a butchering class and we made this wonderful country pate. It was just delicious. You couldn't stop eating it. It was so good. It was full of organ meats. So, I'm going to ask have, whether that's something you do encourage a lot of times as a, a pate as as a as yes. one of the best ways to approach it. Yes, that. it should taste good. You shouldn't have to choke it down, yeah. you know. And uh, I know I've seen French people order a kidney and have a quivering kidney sitting on the plate, but that to me is like eating an oyster. I just can't do it. But I bring you the pate de foie gras. Yes, I I can definitely eat that. So. Uh, Becca, who we both know. Um, I, I uh, brought her a kidney out of a deer I butchered a couple of years ago that she made up. And I said, I'll, I'll let you, you have that. I'm, I, I don't know if I can do it. <laughs> well, steak and kidney pie, I'll make a, a, a mean steak and kidney pie, I can tell you. And uh, it's delicious, but you have to prepare those kidneys right. You cut them up small, you uh, marinate them in vinegar or lemon juice, then you dry the pieces off really well, <laughs> and you fry them in some fat. And then they go into your steak and kidney pie with a beautiful sauce. And boy, it's easy to eat kidneys like that. So I, I'm catching a theme that you keep bringing up, whether it's grains, whether it's dairy, whether it's meats, is, is preparation, right? Preparation, absolutely. Preparation is, is key. Although in the case of dairy, um, it, we don't want to apply any heat to the dairy or not, no more than you need to make cheese or something. But you don't want to pasteurize your dairy. Should sure, killing the enzymes and such. Or prepared, and that's uh, fermented, uh, made into cheese, made into yogurt, uh, kefir, whatever. Yeah. What, what is the um, what are the primary benefits of the fermentation? Um, and 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 you you talk about it with the sourdough as as an aspect. Yes. Well, fermentation in in many well in all cases makes foods easier to digest and um, gets rid of anti-nutrients and increases, in the case of dairy, you increase the, um, the good bacteria, you know, thousands of fold. Um, and, you know, there's, there's uh, more good bacteria in a tablespoon of yogurt or sauerkraut than there is in a whole bottle of probiotics. So, uh, and, and traditional cultures got this every day um, in something fermented, and I'm also very, um, interested in the fermentation of meat mm. uh, because um, traditional cultures fermented a lot of their meat products. Interesting. They, they like fermented what, bones, they fermented organ meats. Um, in, my, in my book, Nourishing Diets, uh, the chapter on Africa <laughs> might make you squirm a little bit, but they fermented everything in Africa. Wow. Interesting. So, one of an, another one of the things I've heard you talk about in the past um, is is that when you have a a, a a deficiency in in the nutrients of your foods, you're not having a nutrient dense diet. Um, that you you um, go back and forth between the puritanical and the pornographic food. Yes, <laughs> right. Well, what's being advertised out there or promoted, not advertised, but promoted is what I call the pur puritanical diet. So no fat, no salt, high fiber. You can hardly choke it down, you know. <laughs> and real dry puritanical diet. And um, 
people can't stay on this diet for any length of time, and that pushes them right into the arms of the pornographic food, which is all the um, junk food, you know, and, uh, with lots of artificial flavors and vegetable oils and sweeteners. Okay. And, so. and what, what you need is something that is not puritanical, that's uh, sybaritic. You want a, a diet that's just really delicious and, and satisfying and uh, that makes you look at pornographic food and think, uh, I don't want that either. That, that, does, that looks kind of, you know, um, silly to me. So, and, and that makes and that makes sense. I don't want to go too far down this path, just because I think there's we could we could talk for hours. Mm -hmm. But um, you talk about <clears throat> high fat diets, mm -hmm. um, but you know I think when people think of fats, a lot of times they think of oils, and so maybe just touch touch on that and and how that plays in. Well, you definitely want to avoid the what I call industrial seed oils. It's interesting, they call them vegetable oils because that's, you know, what's wrong with vegetables, right? But I really think that's the worst component of the modern diet. Yes, sugar is very bad, MSG is very bad, uh, all of these additives are bad, but number one, if you want to improve your health is to get off of these vegetable oils. Hmm. So that's corn oil, soybean oil, um, cottonseed oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, all of these highly processed oils. Um, and just avoid any foods that contain these oils. But you won't be depriving yourself because you can have all the butter you want. Uh, here in our house, we cook in bacon fat. Um, I can tell you, food tastes really good when you cook in bacon fat. <laughs> uh, we, we put lots of fat on our food. We eat food with fat. Um, my husband will not eat a steak unless it has fat on it. So um, that, that's just number one. So. Uh, and, and the problem with these industrial seed oils is they're, they're hidden. You don't see all the oils that are in the cookie or the chips, mm. or the potato chips, but they're, they're there. Whereas you do see the fats that, you, uh, that are on your meat that you put on your bread or whatever. So um, good oils, I think you've talked about olive and coconut are, are pretty good. Yes, and they're actually fruit oils. They're not seed oils. <laughs> How about easy, easy to get out of the fruit. Um, palm, palm oil is also a fruit oil. Okay. How about, um, what's, your, what's your perspective on avocado oil? Yeah, this is a new oil. I, I think it's fine. Um, it's, um, you know, monounsaturated fat. Yeah. Should be fine. Mm -hmm. I, I, I do use that periodically when searing venison steaks in cast iron because it's got such a high smoke point. It's a, it, it works well in that scenario. Tallow is good for that too. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, I, I've really enjoyed this conversation, Sally. It's been it's been great, and I'd love to you know have you on again sometime. And, All right, sure. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure we could find a uh, hundred other things to talk about. But if people want to learn more about you um, and about the Western A Price Foundation, where where should they go? Well, the Weston A. Price Foundation website is westonaprice.org. It's W-E-S-T-O-N. It's a person's name. And we have a huge website. There's a tour for beginners. There's a link to our chapter leaders for finding the kind of foods we talked about, including wild game. And um, 
so that is a huge website and we ask we invite you to become members and get our quarterly journal which um, people read from cover to cover we also have a yearly conference our conference in 2020 will be in portland oregon uh, in november and then as far as i'm concerned uh the um my blog is nourishingtraditions.com and my books all start with nourishing <laughs> so you can find those on online booksellers it's a good word well thanks so much sal i appreciate your time and um and thanks so much for for sharing all your insights with uh, i appreciate it thanks so much for having me and thanks for the work you're doing Thanks for listening to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. You can continue the journey by going to modcarn.com.